Amen. Hey, I know you all just sat down, but uh, I'm going to ask you to stand as I read a passage from God's Word. Uh, You'll have plenty of time to sit. Believe me when I tell you. (laughs) Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For it says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. May God bless the reading of his word. And would you, would you all pray with me and palms open, symbolic that you're ready to receive from God this morning? Heavenly Father, yes, you are everything you said you are. And we are everything you said we could be in Christ. And Father, I pray today that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might hear your message new and fresh. Spirit, I I pray that you reignite a movement in us and through us. I, I pray that what happens in this place now makes a difference when we walk out those doors today and we wake up on Monday morning. Father, I ask that you help me to say what you want me to say in the way that you want me to say it. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 In the beginning, God created everything. He created this incredible, beautiful, amazing world, and he created it for you and for me, the crown of his creation. On day six, God created man and women, and he created them in his likeness and his image. And Adam and Eve had an up-close, personal, and intimate relationship with God. I mean, God would literally walk with them in the cool of the morning. I mean, could you imagine what it was like to live in a world like that? A world untainted by sin and corruption? And can you imagine what it was like to have a relationship with God like that? To have God knock on your door at 7 a.m. when you're in the middle of your Captain Crunch or, or uh, Apple Jacks 
and, hey, would you, Bob, Chris, Fred, would you like to take a walk with me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things were good. They were very good, but unfortunately, they were not very good for very long. You see, before Adam and Eve even got out of the third chapter of God's 1,189 chapter story, they disobey God. And they screw up everything, not just for themselves, but for us as well. And because of their choice, sin, death, corruption, and separation invaded God's perfect world. But listen, that's only part of the story, right? That's our lower story. For you see, long before the first couple sunk their teeth into that forbidden fruit, God already had a plan to set things right. God's upper story. A plan to remove the distance, a plan to give death, to give sin, to give separation, a crushing, lethal, and once and for all time, defeating blow. Amen. Maple Grove, as I said over and over again throughout our journey uh, through the story that began back in January, since the dawn of creation, the overriding theme of human history has been God's passionate pursuit of a prodigal people has been the story of a loving God doing whatever it takes, and I mean whatever it takes, in order to bring his people back to himself. And listen, this plan, this, this plan for God to catch up with his people, with his passion, this pursuit of God's, was a, it was a three-phase plan. And so far in a journey through the story, we've talked about two phases of this plan. Phase one was the, was the nation of Israel. Uh, understand, through Abraham, God built a nation that would begin to show the world what the one true God was really like, a, a nation that was to, to be different than the world, that, that was to live different than the world. And for 2,000 years, God shapes and prepares this nation for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of Christ by uh, giving them the law, giving them his words, his commands, his decrees to live by, by giving them his temple where his presence would dwell, by giving them a sacrificial system whereby a sinful people like them could approach a holy God like him. And by teaching them about holiness, uh, about sin, by teaching them that obedience always leads to blessing and disobedience and chasing after things other than the God always leads to some pretty rough and negative consequences. Yes, for 2,000 years, God tries to shake this nation, and it was not an easy task, was it? I mean, nothing seemed to work for these people. God gave them the law, but they wouldn't keep it. God gave them the temple, but more times than not, they forgot about it or they treated it with contempt. God gave them kings and, and the kings who are, are proud and disobedient. God sent his prophets with words of encouragement and a call to return to God, but nobody listened to the prophets. No, there just doesn't seem to be any hope for these people. And, and, as, and as we went through this, this part of the story together, I think we all eventually got to the place where we're just getting tired of the Old Testament. I mean, it really started to wear us out. And you know what? That's exactly the point. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, it, it, we just get tired of it. it. It doesn't work. And it never was intended to work, at least not in the way we think, because it was intended to do one thing, to point to our need for a Savior, to point to our need for Christ, to point to him as our only hope, the only one that can save us, which brings us to phase two of God's plan to set things right. 
with his people. And that plan was what? It was Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. We've talked about him the last five weeks. A man who lived a sinless life, who died a sinner's death, a substitutionary death. He died in our place. On the cross, Jesus died in my place. On the cross, Jesus died in your place. So that God could pour out his sin-hating wrath on Jesus in order that he could pour out his soul-loving grace on me and on you. Understand, God's passionate pursuit caught up to his prodigal people in all its fullness at the cross. Which brings us to phase three, the final phase, our phase, the church, his body, his bride, his kingdom. Maple Grove, welcome to chapter 28 of the story. New beginnings. A conversation I'm calling the movement. Our text is Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 12. Man, I I love the book of Acts. I've taught through it tons of times. Many times it's taken much more than a year. I don't have a year this morning, all right? My time's much more limited, but my goal is not. See, see, my goal is that when you and I walk out those doors in just a few minutes, we will be, be beyond stoked about the movement we get, a, get to be a part of. Uh, bottom line, if you're already a part of it, I, I want you to leave here more fired up about who God has called you to be and what God has called you to do as his church and as his people than ever before. And if you're not part of it, it's my hope that, that today you'll be moved to surrender your life to the man and to this movement that is changing the world for the last 2,000 years. There are just four points in your notes, the mission, the message, the means, and the movement. Chapter 1 of Acts starts off with these words. Chapter 28 of the story starts off with these words. In my former book, this is Luke writing. Anybody know what Luke's first book was called? Luke, good job. (laughs) He thought it was a trick question. Did he he write first Hezekiah? In my former book, Theopolis, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. With Jesus, it's always the beginning, right? It's never done. It's always going. Until the day was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And after suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On, on one occasion, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. How's that for dramatic pause? <laughs> did Steve, where did he go? I'm back. For John baptized with water, but in a few days we'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then he gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, they still didn't get it. You see, they still wanted to go back to how things used to be, to when Israel was on the top. They wanted the freedom of Moses, the power of David, and the wealth of Solomon. But it really isn't even Israel's kingdom anymore. It's a different kind of kingdom. 
And then we read, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, he said, none of you. None of your business. Don't worry about times and dates when God's going to do things. That's why it always amazes me how so many people today are worrying about times and dates when Jesus is going to do something. You know, when I was in in, in Bible college in 1988, you know, in Florida, a, a, a NASA scientist wrote a book called 88 Reasons why Jesus is returning in 1988. I guess Jesus didn't read the memo, right? You know, he, he didn't come, all right? And Jesus said, hey, that's not your job. I, I know it may be intriguing, but I got a different job for you. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And notice that he doesn't tell them to go into, off in the desert somewhere or, or into a mountain to pray, but he tells them to go into Jerusalem, and their mission was to be his what? His witnesses. Beginning where? Beginning in Jerusalem. And here's Jesus' point. He says, first, I, I want you to start at home. I, I want you to start with the people closest to you, right? In your own city, in your own community, where you live, where you work, where you go to school, maybe even in your own family. And then I want you to go to Judea. And after that, I want you to go to Samaria. It's kind of like the county next door, uh, but the people there are different from you. They're different culturally from you. They're different racially from you. And Jesus said, hey, after you go to the people close to you, I want you to go to people who are kind of nearby you, but they're not like you. They don't look like you. They don't dress like you. They don't act like you. And th- then I want you to go to the ends of the earth and tell everybody else about what's going on. And when we go, he says, you know what? You know, he says, I don't want you to go as a defense attorney. And God says, I don't need that. I can defend myself. Thank you very much. And I don't want you to go as a salesman. I want you to go as what? As my, as my witness. What is a witness? A witness is somebody who just tells what they've seen. I saw this and then I saw that. A witness says, hey, this is what happened. What Jesus wants you and I to do is to say, hey, you know what? Here's what this guy named Jesus did for my life. All I know is that I, I once was blind, but now I see. I, I once was an angry person. I, I couldn't control my temper, and now I control my temper. I, I, I once put my family on the back burner, and I was chasing a corporate ladder, but I stopped that. I jumped on a new ladder, and now I serve my family first. It, it, we just go and say, here is what Jesus has done for me. Here is who Jesus is. And you know what blows my mind about this entire thing is that Jesus has handed the baton of the redemption of mankind to me and to you. Ed Cole tells a story about Jesus returning to heaven after his resurrection and ascension. And as he arrives, all the angels surround him, and they're all pumped up and excited. And they ask Jesus, well, how did things go? He says, man, they went great. Men will be saved. And he lifted up his arm, and he, he, showed, he showed the scars in his hands. And he says, The debt has been paid. I have satisfied the wrath of God. Men's sins can be forgiven. And the angels go, that's awesome. They're slapping high fives. This is incredible. And they say, wait a second. If you're here, how is everybody going to know about this? You say, well, I told my guys. They'll go everywhere. I'll tell everybody. Angels said, well, what if they fail? And Jesus said, I have no other plan. Wow. He passed it to us. Guys, we're it. God God has no other plan. We, his church, we, his people today, are the all-important third phase of God's redemptive story. 
And he calls you and I to do the same thing he called his guys to do, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. You see, God is counting on me, and he's counting on you to be fully committed to this ministry of reconciliation, uh, to this ministry of letting the world know, guess what? I got great news. God no longer counts your sins against you, no matter how many they are. After he said this, he was taking up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. I've watched the space shuttle go up. You just kind of do that. And suddenly, the two men dressed in white stood there. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking in the sky? What are you doing? The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. The mission? To be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The message. So as guys, they go back to Jerusalem and they waited. And as they, as, as they waited, others joined them, both men and women, including Jesus' mom. That's so cool. Jesus' mom joined this group. And the group grew to about 120 people. And you know what they did while they were waiting? They all joined together constantly in prayer. Which, by the way, is probably a very good thing to do when you and I are waiting for God to move in our lives with his power. God, I'm going to pray. Don't know what to do? Will you hurry up and show up? I'm just going to pray. Now, they had no idea how long they would be waiting. Was it going to be a day, a week, a month, two months, a year? They had no idea how long the wait would be, but God knew exactly how long the wait would be, just 10 days until the day of Pentecost. You see, Pentecost was a Greek name given to the feast that Israel had been celebrating since the time of Moses, a feast they called the the Feast of of Weeks, which happened 50 days after the Passover. And at this feast, they celebrated the harvest that took place between the Passover and Pentecost. And they also celebrated uh, the time that the law of Moses was given to God's people on Mount Sinai, which happened about 50 days after the Exodus. It was the best attended feast of all the feasts, probably because the weather made travel so much easier. And, and, and scholars say that the city of Jerusalem swelled to 10 times its normal population of 100,000. You're talking a million people. And listen, it's no accident. God doesn't do anything by accident, by the way. Oh, I didn't see that. No accident. God chose to birth the church and launch phase three of his redemptive plan on the day of Pentecost. I mean, new birth, new life was sprouting up all around them. The best attended feast that there was. People from all over the world had gathered in the city. And it's so cool as they gathered to celebrate God giving the old covenant, God says, hey, how about I introduce you to a new covenant, to a better covenant, to a forever covenant. And when the day of Pentecost came, the, the guys, his guys were at the temple, and we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house. It's just a sound. Imagine being there in this room, and there's a sound of a wind just rushing down from on top of us. But there is no wind. We feel no wind, but we just hear this loud sound. And, and suddenly this huge sheet of fire came, came down, and it split off into several pieces, and, and, and it settled on some of the apostles. And the verb tense indicates that it settled on them, and then it vanished. And everybody there is like really freaking out. <laughs> and, and, and what we have here, you know, is 
what I like to call the second Sinai. Not, see, this stuff is so not an accident. First Sinai, right? You had what? A loud sound. You had fire. You had the birth of the old covenant. And you had God saying, Moses is my spokesman. 1,400 years later, we have in Acts 2, what? A loud sound? Hmm. Fire? Hmm. Birth of the new covenant? Hmm. And God saying, my apostles, these apostles are my spokesmen. And here is the new covenant that you've been waiting for. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were living, saying Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Luke lists 15 of them. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. And because each one heard their own language being spoken, utterly amazed, they said, hey, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Aren't these uneducated hillbilly hicks? I mean, you know, they dropped out in first grade. How, how could they be speaking my language with such precision? We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. You know, when you're in a foreign country, when I was in Bangladesh, whenever I heard English spoken, it really got, I was kind of excited. Hey, I can understand somebody. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? And Peter is fixing to tell them. Peter says, first of all, this means that the gospel is for all people. And Peter stood up with 11, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain. I got some explaining to do. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. Because some people say they're just drunk. It's only 9 in the morning. We're not drunk to 12, all right? So we can't be drunk. It's only 9. Just kidding. Know this, what you're seeing, what, what, what has you bewildered and amazed, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel centuries earlier. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Well, guess what, guys? He says, it's the last days, and what Joel said would come, it's actually here. And I'm saying, if you and I were in the audience that day and heard that, the spirit was to be poured on all people, the Greek word there is the word for flesh, we would have been blown away. I mean, our jaw would have dropped to the ground. That God would invite and pour out his spirit on all people was shocking to say the least. Though it shouldn't, I mean, he said that to Abraham, but we're hard-headed, right? And then in verse 21, it, it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, God's kingdom has come, and it is not an exclusive Jews-only kingdom. Instead, it is a universal, all-inclusive kingdom. And everyone, everyone, Jew and Gentile, male and female, rich and poor, slave and free, young and old, Republican and Democrat, Yankee fan and Boston fan, all right, it has been given the invitation, has been given the opportunity to call on the name of the Lord and be saved through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's all-inclusive. Everybody's welcome. The door is open to everybody. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter where you live or what language you speak. Peter says, you want to know what it means? It means the gospel's everybody. Then he says, Want to know what it means? It also means that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. 
And then, then, then Peter preaches the first gospel message, and he uses Old Testament prophecy. And he talks about events like uh, Jesus' is teaching, his life, his ministry, his miracles, stuff that everybody saw take place to both declare and prove that Jesus Christ was exactly who he said he is. And then Peter comes down to the, you know, the clincher of his sermon. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I understand this massive crowd gathered at Pentecost that day asked two life-transforming and life-redefining questions. Question number one, what shall we do? I mean, what, what does this mean? Question number two, what shall we do? And notice with their second question that things have moved from their head to their heart, from curiosity to conviction. What shall we do? God came and we missed him. God came and we killed him. How in the world do we get out of this mess? And listen, all of humanity leans forward to hear Peter's response. Question, what if Peter had said, I'm sorry, it's too late, it's too late. I'm sorry, Fred, sorry, Dan, there's nothing you can do. Our God is a one-shot God, and you blew it. I understand that that had been Peter's response, we would not be gathered here this morning. But listen to the gospel, the good news that those gathered at the temple that day and those gathered in this room this day need to hear is that the one true, always existing, all-powerful, sovereign, and righteous king is not a one-shot God. Instead, he is the God of the second chance. He's the God of the third chance, the fourth chance, the fifth chance. He is the God of the do-over. Peter replied, repent to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We repent and are baptized in his name, and we receive what? The forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who works out in us what Christ has already won for us. Works out in us what Christ has already won for us. And he goes on, this promise is for you and your children, for all whom are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I mean, they're like this. Okay, let me get this straight. God came, and we killed him. And we're in trouble. And we face the all-consuming wrath of God. And what you're telling me is that if I repent of living for myself, and I'm baptized, that I receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, are you kidding me? And the church grows from 120 to 3,000 in the very first service. And listen, when anyone comes to Maple Grove believing in who Jesus is, the Son of God, our Savior, and they're wanting to do something about this separation from God, we give them the exact same answer that Peter gave 2,000 years ago. Repent to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Last Sunday... Kathy made this decision last Sunday. She seems a little excited about it. And, and this, past, this past Wednesday night, Karen Turner made the same decision right there. Yeah. 
the mission, be his witnesses. The message, the gospels for all people. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. The next point in your notes is the means. How did this first church made up of new believers, how were they able to do what they did? I mean, how were they able to impact their world and, and, and start a movement that has been impacting the world for the last 2,000 years? Well, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, we find the answer. We find five things that the early church was serious about that are essential to any church. And we're going to look at them briefly. Um, but first, I, I want to look at the last verse of that section, verse 27, where we see what the results are. I mean, what happens and when a church takes seriously the things the early church did, here's what we read. They were enjoying the favor of all people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I, I like the results. So how did they get there? Here's what we read. Uh, they devoted themselves. They, those who were being saved, uh, they did what? They devoted, they devoted, the Greek word there means to adhere to a strength, kind of like super glue. They devoted who? Themselves, Right? I don't know about you, sometimes I like to devote other people to God. It doesn't work, right? You know, I can only devote me and you can only devote you. They voted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayer. Number one, they voted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the word of God. I understand these 3,000 new believers said this. And they said, look, we're standing upon the word of God. It, it may be popular, it may not be popular, but this this is our foundation, and it's going to guide, and it's going to direct all of our decisions. It's going to determine the decisions we make financially. It's going to determine where we store up our treasures. It's going to guide who we are in our careers. It's going to direct our paths in our marriages and in our homes and our families. It's going to determine how we treat those who hurt us. It's going to determine the words that, that we speak. It's going to determine what we do and what we don't do, where we go and where we don't go. We're going to, we're going to read it. We're going to know it. But not just that. We're going to take this and we're going, to, we're going to live it out. And every single time we encounter it, we're going to say, God, God, what are you saying to me? And God, what do you want there to be different about my life? Because we never want to leave and encounter with the word of God without being different. God, whatever you want, God, that's what I want. That's what these people said. Kind of like Psalm 119.7, as I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by what? Live as I should. Next, they were devoted to, to the fellowship. Doing life together. You see, they, they figured out that, you know what, we're never going to be the people we're supposed to be on our own. It's just not going to work. And therefore, they were devoted to, among many other things, they were devoted to serving one another and loving one another and accepting one another and teaching one another and encouraging one another and honoring one another and admonishing one another and forgiving one another and praying for one another. Understand, they weren't simply devoted to the friendship, the hanging out. They were devoted to relationships that help each person become more and more like Jesus Christ. And you see, it's this need for the fellowship that we have life groups at Maple Grove. They're developed, devoted to the breaking of bread. They're devoted to communion. We know it's communion because in the Greek it says the breaking of the bread. You know, they're, they're devoted to that weekly reminder of Christ's love, of Christ's sacrifice, and of who actually pays the debt and who doesn't pay the debt. 
They were devoted. They adhere to with strength the prayer. They're like, okay, since the, the veil, that temple was ripped open and now anyone can have access with God, they're like, are you, they're, they're like, I don't know where I put my phone. There you go. Sorry, guys. You mean I have a direct line to the sovereign king of the universe? You mean any time that, that I want to, I, I can talk to the one for whom all things are possible? You know, they were devoted to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. It was more than just a Sunday thing. And they ate together, gladness as their hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Would anybody here like to see the Lord add daily to Maple Grove people are being saved? Anybody like to see that? Okay. Understand if you, the person next to you, in front of you, the person up here, if we, right, we can't do it for anybody but ourselves, if, if we will say, you know what, I am going to devote myself more right now. You know, this time next week, I'm going to be more devoted to God's word, to prayer, to the fellowship, breaking the bread. I'm going to be more devoted next week than I am right now. Guess what? It's going to happen. If we, keep, if we do our end of the deal, God will keep up his end of the deal. If you're taking notes, you'll notice there's a fifth thing I listed under the means, and the Holy Spirit. And it's not mentioned specifically in our text, but it's implied uh, by the signs and wonders by the apostles. And if you read the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is like all over the place. His stamp is everywhere. Everywhere. The spirit that comforts and guides, the spirit that shapes us and convicts us, the spirit that refreshes us and challenges us, the spirit that speaks and acts, that, that moves and empowers us. The mission, be as witnesses. The message, the gospel for everybody, people we like and don't like, is for everybody, everywhere. The message, for everybody, the message, Jesus is Lord and Christ. The message, repent to be baptized. The means, devotion to his word, the prayer, to the fellowship, to communion, and to the Holy Spirit, the movement. And in, in chapter 28 of the story, we see the movement of the gospel. It ends at chapter 12. The movement of the gospel from Jerusalem to Samaria and from Jew to Gentile. And, and, and as the chapter closes, Paul is getting ready to take the movement, one that, one that changed the world, not by power and might, but by grace and truth to the ends of the earth. A guy named Rodney Stark wrote a book called The Rise of Early Christianity. And when he wrote it, he wasn't a Christian. Actually, he was a professor of sociology and comparative religions at the University of Washington. But, but, but he, he tracked Christianity's in his first 300 years of existence because Christianity changed the world. I mean, it started this obscure small Jesus movement and it changed the world. Eventually, Rome was not overthrown. Rome became a Christian nation. Well, how did this happen? Because in the church in those days, they, they had no political position. They couldn't hold office. They couldn't vote. They had no Bill of Rights. They didn't have religious freedom. In fact, you, you, had, you had crazy people, wackos like Nero, who would dip early Christians in tar and set them outside and use them as streetlights in the evening. And yet the church exploded. So he said, how did this happen? It's not a democratic system. They didn't have a vote to cast. They didn't have that. So how did they? How did they do that? 
and he just traces it. And, and he says that abortion and, and fanticide was common in the Roman world. It, it was an accepted practice. It was most often exercised when a, a, a child was born and it's female or had disabilities. You, you, you would just dump it outside the city in the wilderness. And acts like this were condoned by people like Plato and Aristotle. And virtually all the disabled or deformed babies were just simply abandoned. If you were a girl, your chances of survival and a good life were minimal. Early Christians did not allow for that to happen. And now they, they couldn't really control what happened outside their community. Uh, they were not in a political position to force that upon other people, but they could affect how things were done within their community. And, their, and in their community, they just said, you know what, we're just going to do things differently here. That's not how we're going to do it. And so the church valued women and they protected children and, they, and the helpless in the culture, which were in those days not values that people held. Christian men were, were called to love their wives as Christ loved the church and to sacrifice and to protect and to provide for their families. In ancient Rome, Christians saved many, many abandoned babies and brought them up in the faith and in Christian homes became the first orphanages and nurseries. When the church began, Rome was not providing social services to help people in need, but there was no need for government assistance because the church took care of each other. And not only did they take care of each other, they also took care of people who were not part of their community, which in those days was unheard of. In those days, widows were forced to remarry because there was no other way that they could take care of themselves. But the church came in and said, you know, we're just not going to do it that way. And they said to the widows, you don't have to remarry because we're going to take care of you. And they did. Another example, early Rome, young ladies would often be forced to marry even before puberty. And the church came in and they said, we're just not going to do that either. And the list just goes on and on and on. And eventually society is so struck by what's different within the walls of the community called the church that it changes everything. It changes their culture. But it wasn't because they could vote. It, it, it wasn't because they passed legislation that forbids certain practices. And now if they could have been more involved in the political process, then they would have, but that was not an option for them. However, change came in, in the world that they lived in in a major way just because the church was being the church. So here's my question. What would happen if the church was just a church? And please, don't forget the means for this movement, right? Devotion to prayer, the fellowship, the word, leaning on the Holy Spirit. But what would happen if the church was just a church? I think it's hard to be objective, but I think you'd have to ask yourself, if the church was a church and we did a better job of caring for the sick, would there be any health care debate right now? I don't know if there would be. And if the church was a church and marriage was honored and there was complete commitment and the church demonstrated what intimate love really looked like, you have to wonder if it'd be hard for us as a society to try to define marriage. And if the church was a church and we cared for orphans and we cared for foster children and we cared for single moms more effectively, you just have to wonder what that would do to the abortion rate. If the church was a church and we ensured that there were, weren't any hungry people among us and 
People are learning to take care of themselves and to be responsible for themselves and their families. You have to wonder what would happen to our welfare challenges. And, and the church was just a church, and uh, we realized that God has not called us to isolate from culture. He's not called us to sit back in our ivory towers and condemn culture, but he's called us to redeem culture. I mean, what would happen if when you and I walked out those doors, we consistently and visibly lived out what we claim to believe in the workplace, in the marketplace, in the schools, in the universities, in our neighborhoods, in our homes. You have to wonder, if you have to ask yourself if that would change things in our culture in a very dramatic way. You have to ask yourself, you know, would the workplace look different? Would the schools look different? Would the universities look different? Would our neighborhoods look different? Would our homes look different if the church was just a church? Franklin Roosevelt once said, I seriously doubt that there is a problem political or economic that will not melt before the fire of a spiritual awakening. What if? What if the church, what if we actually woke up and we had a spiritual awakening? A guy named Gordon Ferguson wrote a book about the book of Acts called Revolution. In it, he, he makes this quote that I've loved for years. It should pop up in just a minute. A revolution can be defined as a sudden or momentous change in a situation. The book of Acts describes a revolution, not one advanced by cardinal means of physical force, but one accomplished by righteous means of powerful spiritual forces. The source of the spiritual and moral revolution is what Jesus called the seed of the kingdom. And when the seed is planted and watered today, it has the power to ignite a worldwide revolution again, just as it did in the Apostles' Day. Acts is history, but it's also far more than history. It's a story of how God dramatically changes the lives of those who make Jesus their Lord. It's a story waiting to be relived again and again by idealistic, faithful men and women who dare to follow the world's greatest revolutionary. Maple Grove, we have the same mission. Mine and yours are the same, to be his witnesses. You know, in the military, when an officer gives an order, that order is in effect until he actually rescinds it. Right, Larry? Uh, our commander-in-chief has gave us his marching orders, that we're to be his witnesses, that we're to re represent and reflect him in this world. And, and we're to share the same message, the gospel is for all people. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Repent to be baptized for the remission of your sins. And we're to employ the same means. We're to be devoted to Adhere to his strength, to the word, to prayer, to, to the fellowship, to communion, and to the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, we can create the same movement. So the question is, where do we start? We start in our own Jerusalem. That's where we start. And maybe that means starting in your home. Or you take Christ not just from the Bible study, but to your home, to your living room, and to where you live. And maybe you take it to school, you take it to where you work, but we start in our Jerusalem. And where does it start? In our Jerusalem, and it starts when you and I make a decision that I will adhere to with strength like never before to the word, the prayer, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and leaning on the Holy Spirit. And when we do, a movement will start in this place. Would you stand with me as I pray? Heavenly Father, we, 
Father, you did it once. You want to do it again. And Father, I pray that as we sing, as we wrap up this, this discussion, God, that we'll be excited and thrilled and just blown away that we get to be part of a, of a movement that has the power and that has before and that will now and that will tomorrow change lives and change our world. God, reignite a passion in us for this movement. And God, may we strive to live our lives in a way, God, that shows who we belong to. Father, help us redeem our culture for your name and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.